Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Good morning, guys. Glad that you're here. Uh, We're continuing on through our Hosea series, and today we are going for the all-time record. We are covering six chapters today, so uh, I hope you don't have plans for lunch tomorrow because that is how long that we are going to be here. Uh, What a better place to be, you know, comfortable seats, being cozy, like, man, we could stay here for a while, right? Uh, Much better than a pew, I think, you know. Anyway, um, so we've been going through Hosea, and uh, the past few weeks have been just sort of covering uh, the story of Hosea. Really, from a narrative standpoint, the most interesting part of Hosea is definitely the first three chapters. That's where we get that Hosea was called to be a prophet of God. He was called to name his children funny things. He was called to marry a woman of prostitution, and then she uh, leaves him, and then he goes and he rescues her back. And so uh, bear in mind with this entire thing that the first three chapters of Hosea, he is like telling this story, and he's telling it with his life, right? So he's living this out in front of all of the people. That then sets him up to be able to tell the people what God wants them to hear. And as you're going to see in just a moment, what God wants them to hear is not pleasant news. Okay, Um, so he he lives out his life uh, marrying this prostitute then remarrying her, rescuing her, everything like that. All so that he can be set up to tell this story that God has given him to tell. Let me give you like sort of like a teaser. This is how he sets the tone for this passage. This is chapter four, verses one through three. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So that's uh, chapter 4, 1 through 3, and we get literally six more chapters of this, basically. Just rolling through, man. You guys have been missing the mark. You guys have been failing, and bad things are going to happen. If you've been tracking with us through Hosea, you know that there has been, uh, basically, the, the general theme is there is an unrepentant, constantly running away, constantly chasing other things, failing uh, Israel, and there is a God who is all-loving, all-forgiving all accepting, who is keeping up his end of the covenant. And the covenant is just an agreement made between God and Israel that he would make them uh, the greatest nation on earth, that he would take care of them, that he would bless them, that he would multiply them, all of these things. And all Israel had to do was, you know, simple stuff like not murdering each other and following God. And yet they still continue to break this. So God's end of the covenant was to give them everything, and Israel's end of the covenant was to enjoy it and not make up false gods, right? Seems like a pretty easy deal, and yet consistently we see Israel breaking it, Israel breaking it, Israel breaking it. So what follows is six chapters of woes. Now, uh, this is not like the woes that you roll through the six with, if that makes sense. Uh, That was a deep cut. You guys didn't know that I knew what that was, did you? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. But anyway, this is not that kind of woes. Uh, This is more like woe to you, woe betide you, right? These are like terrible and awful things about Israel. Hosea, who had to be an interesting guy, 
If he wasn't at this point, or if he wasn't before, he had to be by now. He's lived through quite a bit, as we've seen through the past three chapters. He throws it down, like real, real hard. Um, and what we're going to do right now is actually take a look at these woes. And instead of reading all six chapters to you, I have broken them into Josh's like top ten woe list. Okay, There's two things that you need to know. The first one is that Ephraim is kind of a shorthand for Israel, for Hosea, for these purposes. So at this point, Israel was split into two different kingdoms. Whole long story. Don't want to get into it too much. Okay, a lot of drama. They're split into two kingdoms. Another evidence of them breaking the covenant. Uh, they were in two kingdoms, and so he refers to Israel as Ephraim here. So if you see Ephraim, uh, don't think the uh, character from the hit TV show in the 90s. What was, what was it? They lived in the mountains and uh, I forget what. Everwood. There we go. Um, think about the uh, half of the nation of Israel. The other thing is, uh, <clears throat> I think in order to make this really interesting and really come home for us, if you guys could react like this is like a disc circle every time I drop one of these top ten and kind of be like, whoa, you know, like, whoa, whoa, you know, like people used to like gather in circles and tell your mama jokes or something like that. Or even like uh, if you need some sort of design inspiration, you know that gif where there's like a bunch of dudes and they're standing around and one guy's kind of like looking like this and then this other kid like does this motion and falls to the front of the screen, you know, and they're all like, whoa, does anybody know? It's tough to describe a gif, right? Okay, I don't know if you've ever had to do it, but it's not easy. Uh, that's kind of like the mood that I want here. Now, we have no evidence to suggest that perhaps Israel was doing this when Hosea was uh, presenting these. But we also don't have any evidence to suggest that they weren't. So uh, let's give it a shot. Here we go. We're going to start with number 10, which I think would be slide maybe number two for you, uh, Cullen. Let's see. Yep. Okay. So number 10, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped, reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of warriors. Yeah, nice. I love it. All right. Number nine, they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom. There's that word again, man. It's coming. Whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. All right. I can tell this is going to have diminishing returns. <clears throat> Ephraim is a, oh, number eight. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. Yeah, right, right. I like this next one. It's kind of simple. Number seven. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. Calling him silly. Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Okay, no more O's. That's fine. All right, uh, number six. Like a, this is a verse, chapter 4, verse 16. It says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. He's calling them a stubborn cow. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? I don't think so. Number 5. This is uh, chapter 6, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early away. Mm. You guys ever been called that? You know how that feels. <laughs> Number four, chapter seven, verse nine. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. Mm, you got gray hair, son. That's what Hosea was saying to the nation of Israel called Ephraim. All right, down to the top three. Get ready. These get savage. Um, 
Number three, verse, chapter four, verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. You see what he's doing? That one's a really savage one right there. He's making fun of idol worship right there. He's like, hey, you know that piece of wood that you could have used for a walking staff? You carved it and then called it your God. What an idiot, right? I mean, that's a dumb thing to do. Except for he throws out whore. Um, number two, here we go. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them all till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Dang, he's talking about their kids now. Um, all right, here's the final one. Uh, this is no real strong particular order. I just thought that this one was the most savage. This is chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Wow. Now, uh, I don't want to, uh, I don't know if we can even show it in here, but uh, the King James Version does not exactly say a wild donkey, okay? Uh, right here, he is calling them a wild donkey, who not only is just a wandering wild donkey, but also someone who has to hire lovers. That is a savage, sick burn. I think what happened here is Hosea actually just won uh, the sort of like, uh, what do you call those, roast uh, contest, the Israel roasting contest. Like, there is no competition for this. If you've ever watched one of those, like Comedy Central Roasts, uh, I would not recommend it. But if you happen upon them, uh, you know that sometimes it's like kind of funny and you're like, ha, 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 ha. And then other times you're like, this person's going to go away really, really sad, right? Like, this is not very good for James Franco in this moment or something like that. You know what I'm saying? And you start to actually feel bad. And man, while some of this is like kind of silly and dumb, like this is definitely more in the feel bad category than it is in the like, this is funny. So the question that we have to ask is, why in the world here? So this is Hosea speaking for God. Why in the world here is he so mad? Why is he so angry at the Israelite people? Why is he using the word whoredom more in the book of Hosea than anywhere else in the rest of the Bible? Why in the world is he making fun of them by praying to sticks of wood that they carved? Why in the world is he bringing down so many woes on them? And it all comes back to this idea of the covenant. Everything comes back to this idea of the covenant. Because at one point, Israel and God were together and they made an agreement. They made a deal. I like to think of it almost like a contract negotiation or you could even think like sort of like, you know, divorce litigation or something like that. And you've got like both parties sitting on two sides of the table and then you've got the guy in the middle who's the mediator. And he's like, okay, uh, God, what? What would you like to bring to the table? And he looks and he says, I'm going to give them a land of milk uh, flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give them freedom from slavery. I'm going to make them the best and the biggest country in the world. I'm going to make them uh, the people who have direct contact with me. I'm going to bless them so much that they are going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. All of their needs will be taken care of so well that they can actually give generously and be a blessing to the entire uh, planet Earth. They will be uh, the greatest nation of all time. And even more than that, they will have direct and immediate contact with me, the God of the universe, and I will defend them and I will stand up for them. And the mediator is like, okay, that sounds good. That sounds reasonable. Israel, what are you going to bring to the table? And Israel's like, well, uh, we promise that we're going to, you know, keep the Ten Commandments. So we're not going to murder each other and, and steal stuff. And we'll make sure we take a day off. And, uh, yeah, we promise to, you know, not make any false gods and then pretend that they're this guy across the table, right? 
It doesn't sound like a very good contract negotiation, does it? Right? Like God is bringing so much more to the table. Israel is bringing next to nothing. They're like, hey, we're just going to enjoy all this stuff that you bring. And then they are the ones that actually break this contract. They are the ones who are consistently covenant breakers. And yet, sitting at this covenant, knowing what God knows, which is everything, knowing what's going to happen, he looks across the table and he says, all right, I'll take it. I know that you're giving me a bad deal. I know I'm bringing more to this table. And I know that you're even going to break the bad deal that you are setting up. And still, I, the God of the universe, out of my great love for you, will actually take this deal. And then it is Israel who ends up breaking this contract. Uh, we were actually uh, doing some like premarital counseling uh, this past week. Uh, names will remain nameless to protect the innocent. But uh, as a part of our like uh, curriculum that we do, uh, that we try and walk through uh, with couples, one of the questions that uh, we have them sort of ask and, and really just sort of bring up to discuss is, can you ever think of a day when you might not love this person? Now, they had like a really good answer. It was like something about, you know, like, uh, I could think of a day when I might not like this person, but I'm always going to love them. And that's like, good, they passed. And so we're going to allow them to be married. But uh, <clears throat> it really, really got me thinking. And I think maybe because we are going through the book of Hosea, we're seeing this like ridiculous, unattainable, unexplainable kind of love that Hosea has for his wife and the same love that God has for us. And it made me start thinking about like why that even is a question for us. You know, I talked a little bit last week about how nobody plans on getting divorced the day that they get married. And it speaks to something, I think, that is deep down inside of us that, man, it is just like it's tough to love over the long term. It's tough to really like ever stay in love the same way that you are the moment that you feel that love. It's like on the wedding day or a few weeks before a wedding when someone asks you, like, do you think you could ever not love this person? Your immediate answer is like, no, I will love them forever. And yet there's like this little goblin inside of us that's sort of like, you know, kind of creeping up and boiling up. And we know that deep down he's in there and he's like, well, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, I'm not even really sure if I love this person now. I'm not even sure if I have the capacity to love. I'm not really sure what love really looks like. I used to love a lot of things. I used to love pixie sticks, but now I never eat them anymore. I used to love my best friend, and now we don't speak anymore. I used to love my first girlfriend, but now I don't even know if that was love, and they changed so much, and is this person going to change? And here I am, I'm looking around. There's so many broken marriages. I've seen it. People that look like they love each other at one point, and then they don't love each other at another point, and everything is just sort of piling up to sort of like create this picture in our mind that says like man we we really want to love and we want to love all the time and we want to love over a long time and yet there is something inside of us something deep down that just cannot love over any measurable amount of time cannot love consistently cannot love fully cannot love all the time the point of this is saying we can plan to do our best. We can plan to do our best, but at the ultimate or at the end of the day, we cannot plan to not be fickle. I know that's a double negative, but we cannot plan to not be fickle. We can plan to do our best, but we cannot plan to not be fickle. Our love is often short term. It's distracted. It has ADHD. It is grasping at shadows. It is chasing after mirages. Our love, it's consistently fickle. Do you remember 
that cause that you were all about that one time? You know, maybe it was like building wells in Africa. Maybe it was like helping out kids somewhere, that thing. And it was just your entire identity for a little while, right? It was everything. And now you've moved to a place where you're like, I don't even really think about that anymore. It used to be all that you loved, and now you can't even focus on it for a moment. Do you remember when you were so in love with that person that you thought that you might die if you didn't see them every like six hours? How do you feel about them now? Do you remember that moment when you truly understood and appreciated the saving love of God and you said that you loved him so much and now you find it difficult to just spend 10, 15 minutes in prayer or in scripture with him? And we are a fickle people. Constantly loving something new, constantly loving something different constantly changing in our own hearts about how we feel about the things that we claim to love and i say all this to say maybe we aren't so far off from the israelites after all because you see what got them into this place was not that they like uh you know one day had god on one side and had baal on the other side and they were just like okay uh which one are we going to choose this thing that we just carved out of wood or this god of the universe that promised us everything and they choose baal no that's not how it happened and it happened slowly happened over time it even happened in the israelites over generations where one generation was not passing over a love for god for the next one all of this happened slowly just sort of crept in and one day it was like okay i'm going to pray to god and hope that this happened and then didn't happen and it's like i'm not sure if we can trust god anymore and then the next day it was like i'm not even sure how i feel about god i don't even know if he's really there i'm not really sure if i love him i'm not really sure and then all of a sudden this other guy comes in and he's bail and we've got these like altars and it's like well you know that really helped out my neighbor's crop yield so maybe i could give that a shot maybe i'll try that and then all of a sudden they find themselves in this place where they are fully involved with a false idol fully involved chasing after something else that they hope is going to satisfy. And God is looking down at them, looking at, down at this fickle-hearted people, and he's saying, what are you guys even doing? What are you guys even chasing after? And you know it has to be breaking his heart to just watch them continue to slip and slip and slip away. More so than intentional choice, time and fickle hearts were the culprit. They were the reason why Israel ended up in this place. They were the reason why they landed here. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this because uh, it isn't really the point of the sermon, but it bears sort of talking about. I don't think that there is any real cure for our fickleness. I know that's kind of like disappointed, but I I don't think that there's any way that we can just sort of like change our hearts and change who we are to become non-fickle people, to love something completely and fully all the time without ever being distracted, without ever being ever turning away. But I think that one thing that we can do is find some ways to sort of recognize and address it. So like I said, this is kind of a sub point. I don't want to spend too, too much time on this. Uh, Here's just sort of like four things that we can do. I think we're going to throw them up on the screen. Four things that we can do to sort of like uh, address our fickleness in some ways. First, we can recognize it. Naming it for what it is is helpful, especially when you can uh, voice it to like a small group or a trusted friend. Uh, Second, you can understand your heart in this. Finding out what motivates you is probably the best way to understand why your heart is being fickle. 
Because if you're just hoping that you'll like have the strength to hold on to this love for a long amount of time, uh, you'll find that what is actually your deep-seated desire and motivation is going to be the thing uh, that sort of pulls you through. So if you can figure out what that is, I mean, uh, the Enneagram is a helpful tool for this. Uh, any type of like self-learning that you can do to find out what really motivates you can help you understand your own motivations when you're feeling fickle and running away. Spiritual habits. Things like scripture, prayer, Sabbath, participation in community, even showing up here on a Sunday morning. These are all sort of like check marks against our fickleness. They're guards against our fickleness. I know for me, uh, it's sort of like working out, right? Like when you're working out regularly, it's much easier to then go in the next day and go uh, back to the gym and get back into it than it is when you're trying to sort of like start it from fresh. And so, uh, man, if you are like feeling out of love with God, uh, one of the best things that you can do is sort of observe and practice spiritual habits or disciplines. Checking in regularly, doing something every single day that sort of forces you to remind yourself how much you love God, it's going to pay dividends in the long run. This is also one of those great things because, like, you know, the first week you'll be, like, halfway through and you'll be like, ah, I've been reading Scripture every day. I haven't really done anything for me. And then two months in you'll be like, man, I love this. This is everything. I have to do this all the time. That's just sort of the nature of our fickle hearts and habits in general. And then two months after that, you'll be like, man, this really isn't doing anything for me. And maybe you'll drop it. Maybe you'll change. Maybe you'll shift somehow. And then all of a sudden, without us even noticing, that love starts to wane, that love starts to shift, that love starts to become fickle yet again. Finally, spiritual retreats. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, a lot of us take vacation time. We'll like go and we'll travel and we'll do things. We'll go out and you know try and explore the world or relax or something like that. How much of our days off or even trip plans that we had for the year are time to intentionally focus on God? Man, this is like difficult for me. And I feel like, you know, I'm like in the industry in some ways, you know, like this is something that has to be difficult for all of us. And yet if we truly, truly, truly want to love God, why not treat it like any other sort of like meaningful relationships where you have to actually take time? You actually have to invest energy into like going off and being with that person and celebrating that person. So think of it like a, a retreat, like, a you know, this is a time where you go off and you spend time with God. Take a silent hike. Maybe uh, go on a guided retreat. There are plenty of, like, uh, retreat centers and even, like, monasteries, uh, many of them in the Colorado Mountains, so right over here in the Rockies, where you could take, like, a, a three-day guided retreat or a one-day silent retreat, lots of really cool things that are out there. If you want to know about more of those, uh, we can help. You can also sign up for different conferences and stuff like that are happening. These are all ways where you can sort of, like, re-up your relationship with God and actually fall back in love with him when you're feeling fickle. Anyway, like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Ultimately, God loves us. So in our fickleness, he doesn't force himself upon us. He actually allows us uh, to sort of chase what we want to chase. You know, love is not love if it is forced. God doesn't convert us into robots the moment that we accept him. He doesn't change all of our desires and all of our loves. He doesn't make us unhumanly. Do you want to break my covenant? Well, the result of that is you no longer have my end of the covenant to look towards. You no longer have my protection. You no longer have my nation building. You no longer have all of these great plans that I have for you. And what would ultimately happen? If you remember, we've been talking about Hosea. What would ultimately happen to the Israelites as a result of all of this is that the Assyrian army would move in, would conquer them, would carry half of them off as slaves, uh, would kill many of them, would destroy their land and take it over, move them off to Assyria, and uh, the nation of Israel would really, in many ways, legitimately never recover. 
Like from this moment where Hosea is looking out at the nation of Israel and saying, hey, the Assyrians are coming. It's going to be really bad for you. This was the last moment until like the 1960s when Israel was actually a legitimate and unified nation that was in control of their land. Like how astounding. Think about sort of like the long term impact and meaning of that. It's crazy, right? Crazy. And all of this because God was saying, hey. I'm going to let you see the natural consequences on this. And the thing about natural consequences is it's really tough on a parent sometimes. You know, there's sort of like two ways, you know, if you're like reading, you know, uh, books about natural consequences and stuff like that. There's kind of two ways that you can get it really wrong. One is by not actually doing natural consequences, just sort of like, you know, letting them have like, you know, ridiculous consequences. Uh, and just like throwing, you know, stuff that's unrelated onto them saying like, hey, uh, you're going to get punished uh, for this by doing, you know, like having them completely unrelated, basically. And the other way is, I think, caving too quickly. You know, like that's kind of like the, the challenge there. Like she's never going to learn that her hands are going to get cold in the snow if I actually am just carrying her mittens. So that the second that we're halfway to wherever we're walking to, she's like, oh, I need my mittens. I'm like, oh, here they are. But man, that that's the tough part right there. And we're not sitting back, you know, we're not monsters letting her get frostbite or anything like that on her hands. But man, it is still tough to see, like, me allowing her to have this natural consequence and standing back and sort of, you know, just letting it all happen, though I know what is going to happen, is a painful thing. We have to assume the exact same thing is happening with God here. He's looking down at these Israelites. He's looking down at their fickle hearts. And he's saying, man, I know what is good for you. I want to give you what is good. I want to give you life. I want to give you purpose. I want to make you a blessed nation so that you might be a blessing. And instead, you are chasing after shadows. Your fickle hearts are consistently running around again, around or about anything and everything that is not me. You ever see one of your friends doing something that you know is going to be bad for them? You ever see them chasing after something and you're like, that's not good. They're dating some person that's a monster. Uh, They're like uh, changing, you know, into something that you don't, you know, want to see them do. You see them like chasing. Maybe they bought into some scam or something like that. Do you know how painful of a situation that is? You sort of sit back and you watch and you're like, oh, this is going to be bad for you. This is not going to be good. And maybe you even say that. Maybe you feel like you can't. And either way, all you can really do at the end of the day is watch them make this decision. And you want to say stop. You want to say please don't. You want to like do everything that you possibly can, but you know that you can't actually make them stop. And this is what God was doing with the Israelite people. Can you imagine what he was feeling like having to watch that? So naturally, God being God doesn't leave them there. We actually see this in chapter 6. This is the redeeming hope. And honestly, these three verses are the most redeeming section of this entire six-chapter little spread that we're going through. This is chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains water the earth. I've always liked the old adage, what doesn't kill you make you stronger, but I think it's completely untrue. 
you ever thought about this? Like, uh, no offense to Kelly Clarkson. I mean, the song is like a banger, right? Like 2011, and it's still just sort of hanging around. But I think it's not really true. Like, I mean, sure, it's true in some situations, right? Like, working out, uh, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger, has to be kind of true, right? It kind of hurts to work out, and then you actually legitimate or li literally get stronger. Uh, think about, like, getting out of a bad relationship, like you're a stronger person when you get out of it. Uh, I don't think a car crash really fits into this, like, uh, category, though, right? You know, it's something that maybe it doesn't kill you. I don't know that you walk away necessarily stronger from it. Uh, chemotherapy doesn't really, like, work this way. Like, maybe, you know, it's killing you cancer, so you could argue you're stronger, but ultimately, like, makes you weaker in order to, you know, help to heal you. But stronger is probably not the, like, reaction here. Going to the DMV, it doesn't kill you most of the time, I think, but it does not make you any stronger, right? You leave a worse person, wounded, crippled somehow, uh, harmed in, incurably, I think, in some way. All of that to say, I think we like this idea, but I don't know that this is necessarily how the world actually works. And I think if Hosea were Kelly Clarkson, which is not a sentence that anyone's ever started before, if Hosea were Kelly Clarkson, he probably would say that what doesn't kill you actually draws you closer to the Lord. Check this out in verse 1. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. That middle line has just been stuck in my head ever since sort of prepping for this sermon. He's torn us that he may heal us. Other versions say that he wounds that he may heal. You know, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is like such a platitude and it's essentially meaningless, right? Like it's just something you tell your friend so they'll feel better when they're in the middle of like something hard. Like, oh, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And then you pat them on the back and just go on your way. But here... The God of the universe is saying that he wounds that he may heal, that he allows us to be torn up, to be struck down so that he may come in and heal us. That is a life changing thought. And it definitely should reframe the way that we think about wounds, the way that we think about things that harm us, the way that we think about things that hurt us. Like, what if the most difficult things in the world that you have to face, some of the things that have wounded you, the things that you carry around even to this day, what if they were there so that God could actually heal them from you? Like, what if they were allowed to happen in your life, even the most terrible of terrible things, so that God could step in and show you that he is the one that can bind you up, he is the one that can make you whole? Just yesterday, I was actually uh, playing in the morning with Evie, and uh, she was, we were like doing something, and I told her, well, I can do that because I'm really strong, you know, I said, the dad is very strong. And I say that uh, because uh, I am the strongest in my family, no offense, Sarah, uh, no offense, Evie, also, I know you guys are really impressed, because I have a very strong presenting family. Uh, and I say that just to know, uh, to let her know that uh, if she ever wants to pick a fight with me, I'm going to win, right? This is an important part of being a dad, I think, in some ways, and let her know that I am really, really strong. So later on, uh, I was sitting and sort of reclining after dinner. You know, I, like, was sitting back, and I had my, like, hand on my knee, and she, like, comes up and grabs my hand and, like, tries to, like, do a chin-up on it or something like that, and it just, like, falls down because I wasn't ready for it at all. And I kid you not, she looked at me, and she actually said, I thought you were strong, <laughs> like, just, like, without even missing a beat. 
And I realized what had happened is she had gone into a room and she had thought to herself, like, Dad said he was the strongest earlier. I'm going to test this theory. <laughs> and comes out, surprises me, and uh, shows me that I'm not very strong. So what I did, actually, in that moment was I picked her up and I did, like, you know, like uh, three chest presses with her. And I was like, look how strong I am. And I did this for three reasons. One is uh, we're practicing for Cirque du Soleil. I'm trying to make the senior tour at some point. I really, really, really want to get in because I think what they do is awesome. Uh, secondly, I had this theory about... About, uh, child rearing. If you pick up your child every day and continue doing it even as they approach adulthood, you will get that much stronger every single day. Right? Like, uh, mom's in the room, especially if you got a baby right now, you can pick up that baby, right? And if you keep picking them up, keep picking them up, even go through the awkward middle school years, you pick them up every single day, go through the teenage years in high school, when you pick them up from school, literally pick them up from school, like, pick them up every single day. Imagine how strong you could be. Right now, every, you know, no matter how new of a mom it is in the room, you can pick up your little newborn baby. Why not just slowly increase the weight over time? I think it'll work. It's a good workout strategy. Now, uh, the third reason why I picked her up and is because I wanted to show her that I was actually strong. See, a five-year-old very often realizes that they're not strong enough. She cannot open any jar that has not previously been opened, and sometimes even things that she closes too tightly herself she needs help with. She cannot pick up many things. Uh, they're very often just being shown that they are not strong enough. Just the other day, we like walked up to like this glass double door. She could not even open the door, meaning like you know if there was a fire in the place that we were in, she could not even save herself. And so. A five-year-old not being strong enough needs to be shown regularly. They need to be, know that when they get in a jam, there is someone who is strong enough to take care of whatever they want. Now, none of you guys, uh, or whatever they need, I should say, none of you guys tell Evie this, but I am not actually the strongest person that there is. I am not even strong among men. But in her mind, I am one of the strongest people that there is. And even more important than that, she knows that I am on her side. That I am not just strong for no purpose. I am actually strong for her when she needs me to be. I am the one that can open the jar of salsa. I am the one that can push open that unopenable door that stands before her, right? I am strong enough to do all of those things. And it is good and necessary that she knows that, that I am strong enough to protect her. I'm strong enough to provide for her. I'm strong enough to take care of her. Now, as a side note, she also needs to know that I am weak and I can be weak, and that's fine. She also needs to know uh, that she is strong and can get stronger, and, but that's a whole different parenting sermon. So anyway, for the sake of this sermon, all I'm going to talk about is why I need to be strong. The point is that she actually had to sort of prove for herself that I was actually strong so that she will be able to trust me in other things, right? And I think the truth of the matter is that you can only know that God is the good healer. You can only know that God is the one who can bind up all of your wounds if you come to him when you are hurt. The only way that you can know that a doctor is good or bad at what they do is when you need a good doctor. And you cannot know that God is a good healer unless you are actually wounded. 
Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking to yourself, like, that's crazy. There's this big guy in the sky, and uh, he's just uh, hurting us so that he can heal us. That's kind of, like, sadistic, right? Like, that's kind of messed up. That's kind of gross. And I think it is kind of messed up if you think of life in terms of the sole purpose of life is just to be well and just to live a good life, just to be well taken care of. But if the point of life is to know and trust God completely, the point of life is for you to actually put your entire faith and trust in God. If that is the case, then we have to be wounded so that we can learn that we can trust him as a healer. We have to actually be broken so that we can learn to trust him to put us back together. There's no way to learn that without experiencing it. I mean, I think about like on our wedding day, like I uh, thought that Sarah would be there. I hoped that Sarah would be there for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I wanted all of those things to be true, and I really, really hoped that they were. But it wasn't until now we've been married for a long time, and I actually was able to see in those moments when we were, uh, well, I don't know if we've ever been richer, but when we were not as poor and poorer, right? Like when we were better and worse, when we were in sickness and in health. And only by seeing her do I actually know that all of those things that we said that we hoped we would be for each other would actually come true from our wedding day. That's the only way that I could actually trust it. There's no way that I could just sort of like assume that that was going to be there and then put my like full faith, hope, and trust into it. It is something that I had to experience in that moment. And the same exact thing is true with God, that we have to see that he is the healer, which means we have to come to him broken and in need of healer to actually, or in, of healing to actually believe that he is the good healer. Here God lets Israel experience these painful natural consequences of their actions so that they might actually can know that he will come and heal them. Let's go back to 6, 1 through 3. This is verse 2. It says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Even better than all of this good news that Hosea has, he inexplicably describes this healing as revival and raising up on the third day. What's happening is here, probably Hosea, without even knowing, is giving like a Jesus prophecy. He's letting people know that something big is going to happen. There's going to be revival. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be putting back together on the third day. We call it Easter, coming up in just three weeks, I think, actually. little plug there. We celebrate this. You know what else is really cool about this? Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, I believe, Paul actually says that Jesus rose on the third day in accordance of the, with the scriptures. This is the only place. Nowhere else does it talk about three days. You could maybe argue like Jonah and the whale. There's no other place in the Old Testament where someone is uh, revived and raised up in three days. So in the middle of some of just the harshest, most terrible section of scripture where God is just laying out woe after woe after woe after woe. All of a sudden, he comes in with this and he says, after two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up and lets them know subtly and without any of them hardly even noticing, without Paul even noticing until he's able to look back on history and see that what Hosea was promising here was not just that one day they wouldn't be owned by the Assyrians. but What he was promising is that one day they would be set free, they would be healed entirely from the inside out. That one day Jesus would come, he would die, and he would be revived on the third day so that humanity might be healed. 
So what does he say that we should do in light of all of this info? Verse 3 says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. That word there for know is not just like, let us understand, let us get to meet, let us find out. It is an intimate word for know. It is the same word uh, used very often in the Old Testament in marriage context. It is let us know completely. Let us have intimate knowledge of God. Let us be close to him. Let us understand who he is. Let us know him as the healer. Let us see him completely for who he is. Not only as a strong and powerful and providing God, not only as a jealous God who is willing to stand up for what is right and for what is wrong, but also as a God who is a healer. Let us press on to know him as that because in our darkest night, no matter how dark, no matter how evil, no matter how painful, we can trust that the sun is going to rise the next morning because no matter how uh, dry our winter might be, no matter how dead everything looks around us, we can trust that the rains are going to fall once more. And in the same way, no matter how terrible our life might look, no matter how deep and painful our woundings are, we can trust God to be the good and perfect healer that we need. In this moment, it seems appropriate for us to do what Israel would not do in Hosea's time. It seems appropriate for us to return to the Lord. Let us seek to know him. Let us seek to be healed by him. Let us know his healing power. God is the good healer. And he is ready and waiting to heal you from whatever wounds you might be carrying around. That might not be tomorrow. might not be on our time. I might not even be here on this earth. But he is a God who is good, who is kind, who is powerful to heal. I want you to think right now about how you would sort of think through this passage of Scripture. So think through what this would actually look like in your life. Now, in Israel, these wounds meant the Assyrians coming in. It meant all of the terrible things that we sort of laid out and all of the woes. It meant the place where Israel had come to. But man, how does it look in your life? Maybe it's something that's been done to you that you're still carrying around as like an open sore, something that just sort of like lives as a wound in your head, constantly reminding you that it's there, constantly reminding you that it's giving pain. God wants to heal you from that. Maybe it's that thing that you did that is just so embarrassing, so evil that you can't even voice it to another human being. And it's that thing that you carry around that you can't believe you thought that, you can't believe you said that, you can't believe that you did that, and yet you did. And every once in a while at unexpected times and places it pops back into your head to remind you just how screwed up you really are. That is something that God desperately desires to heal you from. Turn to God. Know his healing. Experience his healing. As sure as the dawn, as sure as the rain that falls, he is coming back to heal you. 
And he sent his son Jesus to rise on the third day so that we might be healed permanently. So we might be healed from our own sins. We might be healed from the ugliness of this world. Be able to spend eternity with him. And know that in this moment, that you are loved completely by this same God. You are known completely. He knows all of your wounds. He knows all of the ways that you are broken. And you are also forgiven completely. That if God can offer a way back for a wayward Israel, he can offer a way back for you. This good and powerful healer stands ready to heal you of this and of all things. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.